when we go to shops, I don't look at the till and see how much is in it or see how many cups you sold or bags you sold. My first thing is to look at the staff. How are they feeling? I look at the customers. How are they feeling? And just the looks on people's faces, the sounds that you hear in the conversations here is, is a, a wonderful kind of indication of how your business is doing. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Fifth Wave. In the next two episodes, we'll be exploring the critical business metrics or key performance indicators that successful coffee and hospitality operators use to navigate their teams to greatness. A great deal of consideration and meticulous planning goes into opening up a hospitality venue. From finding the right location, building a solid team, to sourcing the best coffee beans. Owners know the painstaking efforts involved in making sure every detail is perfect. But once the doors are open for business, how do you know if your venue is on track for success or not? It's important to realize that a busy location and high revenue doesn't always translate into long-term success and more importantly, profitability. So what are the indicators coffee and hospitality operators should be tracking to maximize short and long-term business performance? In this first episode on business metrics, I'm delighted to be here with Colin Harmon, founder and CEO of specialty coffee business 3FE. Colin is a former Irish barista champion and opened his first coffee shop in Dublin in 2009. He now has seven sites across the city and a formidable roasting and wholesale business. He is also the author of What I Know About Running Coffee Shops, which has sold over 100,000 copies worldwide. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you give us some background about how you got into coffee and what attracted you to coffee some years ago. I've been working in hospitality my whole life. My first job was in um, McDonald's on Grafton Street in Dublin. And I've always worked in restaurants, bars and cafes. And as I progressed to university and school, that was kind of um, there to support me, you know. So a degree in business and law uh, from University College Dublin. And when I finished that degree, I got a job working in uh, finance as a trustee officer. And I was a few years deep into that and I kind of realised like, it was a good job and really liked the people I worked with and it was well paid, but I just didn't love it. Like it wasn't for me. And the thing that I'd been doing to get me to that point, I working in hospitality was actually calling me back. So I said I'd take a year out and I'd see how I'd get on. So I didn't really know what I was going to do at that stage, but I, I got a job working as a barista and then I entered the Irish Barista Championships as a, I suppose just more of a kind of an education tool more than anything else kind of accidentally won that, uh, went to the World Barista Championships and managed to finish fourth in the world, which was as much of a shock to me as it was to everybody else, I think. And that was actually a year to the day after I started working in coffee. So at that point, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to stick at this. So I didn't have much money. So I set up a pop-up coffee shop in the lobby of a, a nightclub on uh, one of Dublin's less salubrious streets and started selling coffee. And uh, I think like, the first day we sold 16 cups and the next day it was 18 and then it kind of rolled on from there. Today we have seven shops. We have a roastery in Dublin where we roast coffee for people all over the world and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. So that's how I got into it. What was it about coffee that attracted you to it? Was it the coffee? Was it the coffee shop experience? <laughs> I can remember not really identifying as a coffee lover and I, I gave up smoking 
And then uh, I kind of got annoyed when the people in my office were just disappearing every hour or so for a cigarette break. And so I said, well, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. So, I, well, they went smoking, I went getting a cup of coffee. And uh, it kind of intrigued me that some days it would be great and some days it would be terrible and it would be the same person, the same place. So kind of delved into, you know, Google and then into coffee forums. And all of a sudden I was flying over to the UK to do um, tasting events and meeting people there. And it really got me sucked in. And I think like that's kind of what will get you is the people. Um, it's a wonderful industry to work in. You get to meet so many different people and do so many different things. And I'm the sort of person who's wired towards needing like constant activation in terms of tasks. There's always a variety of different things to do. And I, I really enjoy that. But it's, uh, it's definitely the people that have kept me in the industry. So what was your vision when you created 3FV? I understand it was a few years after that, but what was the actual vision for the business? The business is called 3FE because uh, when I was training for the World Barista Championships, I, I set up a, a training room in my third floor apartment. So 3FE stands for third floor espresso. And in that apartment, I'd have like the best coffees I could find. And I was bringing people up there and letting them taste them. They're like, this is insane. You can't get this in a retail shop in Dublin, you know. And I suppose with 3FE, the idea was to bring that experience to the retail, uh, to the high street, you know. And for a long time, for many years, that was it. It was just like introducing people to specialty coffee, getting them to understand that it has different flavor profiles, different tastes and making them enjoy it and being approachable about it, like being inclusive rather than exclusive. And um, that's what kept me going, just like the look on people's faces, just when they have a great cup of coffee. And that was enough for a long time. Uh, and I suppose over the years, it's kind of evolved. Um, I mean, when we started roasting coffee, I had a list of about 10 or 12 different roasters in Ireland. And today I have a list on my laptop of about 150 and I've definitely missed uh, a few, you know, and we're a small country, only about 5 million people. Mm. And people are familiar with specialty coffee and they understand it and that battle has been won to a certain, a certain extent. So now I suppose it's trying to make it more accessible on a wider scale. Like, we, we, like I say, we've got seven shops, uh, we'll roast over 200 tonnes this year, so it's a different beast now. But we still, like to my mind, we do better quality than we've ever done and it's introducing that in an approachable way to people. Uh, like the, the cafes have to be places that people feel welcome, that it, it's not like a, a lecturing experience. You know, people can learn as much as they want or if they just want a coffee, they can have that too. And just that kind of moment when people come in and have a great cup of coffee and it just sparks their day, you know, that's what really tries everything. You've written a book on the topic of coffee shops, what I know about running coffee shop. What do you know? I didn't want to call it how to run a coffee shop because it, I don't think my particular circumstance is, you know, a cookie cutter solution to everybody around the world. And also I'm, quite conscious that I'm making and have made loads of mistakes. So it was more just a bit of a perspective. And I met lots of people that want to open coffee shops, but they don't really understand what it's really like. And I know there's lots of business books and there's lots of books on coffee, but I felt there was not very much in the space in between. And it was actually a college project for a master's course I was doing in innovation, enterprise and design. Um, and I think the one thing that has come from it is like I've traveled the world and done a lot of events around this and you meet people that run coffee shops. It's that thing of they're like, this is really hard. And I thought I was messing up and I'm glad it's been hard for you too. If that, it's kind of a weird thing to say to somebody on like it is like, because I think Instagram and things like that make it feel like it's just this wonderful thing that you can do, but it's, it's difficult, you know, it's always easy. And uh, yeah, I think I wanted to get that across a, a more realistic view of what it's like, uh, but also the fact that it is really rewarding uh, and you can really love what you do. What are some of the, the specific learnings that your book has um shed light on that, that you've learned over the years in establishing coffee shops? Oh, what I'd like to think comes across and is that you're in control of a lot of parameters within your business. 
and you can do things in a way that nobody else has done them before and that's okay and I think in the coffee industry like the coffee industry is a wonderful place uh, and I, I'm proud to be part of it but it, it suffers from groupthink and it's a bit of an echo chamber at times and I think it, uh, what a lot of people running businesses are, are doing their coffee businesses are that, is that they see what everybody else is doing and they're replicating that or else they see the best bits of other people's business and they try to you know mix them all together and, and presume that will be successful and when you open a coffee shop like really you have to like, by all means take inspiration from people but like use your own ideas uh, use ideas from other industries and and pick the appropriate things that you love from other coffee shops uh, for your location so if you're like in a small sleepy town, you're not going to do huge amounts of takeaway coffee. Uh, you know, that, simple things like that seem obvious, but we see people that open coffee shops trying to kind of crowbar every aspect of other shops that they love into their own place. So when you find a location, the way I always like to think about it is that somebody could make this work. Like somebody has a way of making this location work. And it's about getting the mix right. Like how many tables and chairs do you need? Do you need to have a food offering? If it is, what type of food offering is it? And how extensive is it? Uh, what is your experience base? You know, what experience base do you need to bring into the business? How much is a, an appropriate amount of money to spend in these areas? Because if you just go out and buy the best machines, you know, put on the egg dish from your favorite cafe in Melbourne, uh, stick a roaster in the back, you know, have a brew bar and do all these lovely things that you love about coffee. It's not coherent and conducive to where you are. I'm like, I'm not a genius, but I think I am good at, at taking a location and deciding what's best for that location and, and putting aside your own wants and desires to a certain extent. You still have to have, you know, achieve what you want to do, it, but you have to nurture it and make it suit where you are. And I don't think people do that enough, you know, or they'll fall in love with an idea they have and just put it at the first place they can find, which never really works. You do have to tailor the shop to the community that you're in, to the type of building you're in, to the space you have and do that in a way that's actually intuitive. Uh, maybe I'm uh, naive, but I do like to think that you can make every location work if you get the mix right. And But the mix is important. It's not just about enforcing your own wants on it. What are the metrics that you use in your business to determine the success of your businesses? I think like the one that people always go to is turnover. And I think as a wise man, it says that, you know, Turnover is vanity and uh, and profit is sanity. And I think um, constantly chasing turnover can be a difficult thing to do. I could bring you to coffee shops all over Europe that have really high turnover and they're losing money hand over fist. So when we're looking at, uh, at our own shops, what we're trying to do is to look at different uh, indicators of where they're being successful and where they're not. So depending on the locations, in four of our locations, we have kitchens. We're looking at the, the split between coffee sales and food sales um, and, and make sure we're optimizing both of those things. In all of our locations, uh, we do takeaway coffee. So obviously we look at the numbers of takeaway coffees that we're doing. And then we also look at the amount of beans that we sell uh, for each visiting customer because beans are a big driver of business. And because we're a roastery as well, it's extra important to us. And getting ratios of those things are like if you've got low bean sales in comparison to other places at one of your locations. Like recently, we redid a retail wall to put it in a better position, make it more prominent and hold more beans. And we saw an instant impact in the amount of uh, coffee beans we're selling uh, and no impact on the amount of cups that we're selling. So it's you still have the same amount of customers coming. Your drinks and food sales are exactly the same. But some of those people are now buying beans that weren't buying before. And that's the far better thing than increasing the amount of people that come to your door because you still have the same amount of people to serve. So it's not a huge impact on what you're doing. It's almost like a passive income that comes with it. Um, in the past, like we used to look heavily at like the amount of cups that we sold, but I noticed at a certain point that when we tipped over a certain amount, we needed extra staff. You've got more um, cost in terms of cups and beans and milk and all these things. 
the quality of the service would probably drop off a little bit because things are a bit too hectic. The quality of the coffee will drop off a little bit. So it, it, sometimes your, your turnover going up isn't actually the answer, you know. And you have to be careful this because looking at your staff costs as well as a thing that, that obviously is, is very important to most businesses. So taking a snapshot of your cost, your, your staff cost and saying, well, we're aiming for, let's say, uh, 25% and currently it's at 30%. So in isolation, that looks like it's too high. We need to get it down. We need to cut some errors here. But if you take a more long-term view, if you say, well, where were our sales? Where are our sales going? So at a certain point, if you have, let's say, three staff on bar, you can only really make so many coffees. Um, and if you invest in an extra member of staff, that will enable you to get to the next level where the, the queue starts to uh, speed up, the quality is getting better, the service is getting better, and then more people will come. But in the meantime, you're at a point where that extra staff member to get you to the next kind of plateau of turnover means that your staff cost is too high. So being able to look at your staff cost and go, it's too high, but given the way our sales are going and where we want it to be, uh, that's something we can soak up in the meantime. So I suppose taking a long-term view on these metrics is, is, is really important. I, I definitely think uh, like watching margins and keeping an eye on, on your, your staff costs and all these kind of things are, are important, but having a long-term view of it and matching that to what you're actually trying to achieve is, is far more important and using them as tools for you to make a decision rather than using them as decision makers is, is the most important thing. What about rent rates and service charges? How important is the property metrics in, in your decision to maybe take on a store in terms of what level of business you can trade from? Despite what most people would have you think about people that run businesses, I'm definitely, I don't see myself as a risk taker. So we tend not to have places that have huge rents. And uh, I'm always thinking of the downside, like what happens if it's not going to work out, you know, we've quite an extensive business at this stage, but we don't borrow any money. We don't have any investors. So we don't, we try to do things in a way that's uh, from the get-go is viable. So like I said, when I opened that shop and hadn't served 16 cups of coffee, it was probably viable because it was only me there that day. Um, it's always been that way. It's a funny one because whenever a business closed down, you'll always hear the person running the business say, oh, was the rent is ridiculous in that area. We couldn't do it. And that does happen. But if the rent is such that it can knock your business out, then you probably shouldn't have gone there in the first place. Because in most scenarios, like it should be in and around 10%, depending on the, the mix of your business. Now, your staff cost can very easily go up over 40%, or your uh, product cost could go up over 40 45% if you aren't controlling your waste. Um, and those things are usually the things that um, kill businesses, or really even the quality of what they're doing because they're not getting customers in the door. Now, they're all things that you can blame yourself for. But the thing is that the thing that's 10%, and the less consequential of all of those issues, is the one thing that you can blame somebody else for. So whenever shops close down, they're always like, it was the rent. The rent was extortionate. They closed us down. It wasn't our fault. But more often than not, I think you need to look at yourself and go like, what are the decisions that I could have controlled that could have made this business work? So I wouldn't be into extortionate rents. It's not really within our model or ethos about what we do. But uh, the big things that make your business work or not work are, are really down to you. Are there any softer metrics you might measure your business by? Are there any other metrics that you kind of implement into your business decision making? I'm a firm believer in, in following your gut. And uh, when we go to shops, I don't look at the till and see how much is in it or see how many cups you've sold or bags you've sold. My first thing is to look at the staff. How are they feeling? Look at the customers. How are they feeling? And just the looks on people's faces and the sounds and noises that you hear in the conversations here is, a, is a, uh, a wonderful kind of 
indication of how your business is doing. And you, you could have a terrible day of sales and leave your business feeling good because you know that like over the course of time, this is going to work because it's a great place. People love it. They're enjoying the space. The staff are happy. And that all counts for something. It's not something that you can see on the till read at the end of the day. Um, I think it, it's very easy to look at numbers all day long, but you have to walk the floor and talk to people and get a good sense of of how people feel because it, it brings coherence to your business and every business, whether you acknowledge it or not, has a culture and has a value system. And some people have it all written down and posted on the wall and posters and kind of fancy documents. And some people just know it intuitively, you know, and just keeping an eye on that and making sure that you're fostering the right thing. And it's like we've been going like 14 years uh, and there's times we've fallen short of it and there's times we're absolutely killing it. Uh, but nurturing that and keeping control of it and, uh, is, I would say, the most important thing because like every business should have a vision and then you have to get people to buy into that vision or it's not going to happen. People don't need to understand where you're going, why you want to do something. It's not as simple as just telling them what to do and giving them a list of instructions and then hoping it works. It's like business is business, but business is people. It's always about people. It's the people that supply your business. It's the people that work for you. It's the people that come and visit your shops every day. And having a good sense of those people is huge. And it's like I say, it's not something you can put on a spreadsheet, but it's something I probably spend more time monitoring, to be honest with you. Do you do any formal sort of customer feedback or measuring customer satisfaction? Or does that happen, you know, just by osmosis or watching and observing customer behavior? I think um, a big one for our industry, love it or hate it, is um, Google reviews and Yelp and things like that. So we keep an eye on that. And I think even if it's a situation where someone's giving you a terrible review, there's a solid reason for that. So there's always a positive you can pull out of it, you know. So if someone comes to your cafe and they're like, oh, they don't have a cooked food menu, this is ridiculous, you know. It's like, well, have you done anything to imply that you might have that? Has that been made clear? Um, so, so small things like that. It's always like, if there's a negative review, how can you pull a positive out of that? Um, that aside, from time to time, we do kind of surveys and, and, and see how those go. We have signs in the toilets. You know, we had like toilets at 3FE.com so people could put in reviews of the toilets and make sure they're clean and spick and span. So that was a bit of fun for a while. But I think with, with, with all feedback, uh, whether it's kind of face-to-face or on surveys, you have to be able to take it and assess it and I suppose look past it. Uh, sometimes people are saying one thing, but they mean another. Um, I think if sometimes it's a feedback that's easy to disregard, uh, you have to understand like, why is that feedback coming in the first place? Um, so I, I think interpreting the feedback is far more important. We do try to mix it up. Um, surveys can be difficult because they could, they constrict what people can say back to you. Like there might be a, kind of a, a word limit, or it's you know reduced to four or five bullet points, and things aren't really like that. So I think definitely you can use them as a, a way to to get an indication of that. But they're really just going to talking to people, and I suppose more so watching their behaviour because I think people will say things and do another. But watching their behaviour and, and using the analytics you get from till systems and, and things like that shows what their behaviour actually is, despite what they might say. So as your business has scaled up to seven sites and a formidable wholesale business, are the metrics and KPIs used today different from those early days? In the early days, it was, like I said, it was just for the love of it. And I got a degree in business and I had like years of experience in finance. And when I look back at what I was doing from a financial perspective, it made absolutely no sense because it just wasn't my focus. I just wanted it to be as good as possible. And I kind of had a feeling that, which I still believe that if it was good, it could be scaled. Uh, but if you started off just trying to scale something and it wasn't good, it would never work. So over the years, I'm 
kind of acutely aware of my own shortcomings. So you try to make people join your team that can fill in those gaps. So my business partner is an accountant by trade and together we work really well. He's a very different perspective on things and we've learned a lot from each other and it's made me better at my job and I'd like to think vice versa. And we we watch metrics from, you know, the amount of cups we're selling, the amount of beans to cups ratios, the, the margins on the food, all these kind of things. And I'd say I'm probably more focused on like the feel and the value system and what we're trying to achieve and all those kind of things. And but together we mix the two and learn from each other and use them to reinforce each side, if that makes sense. Because like I say, you could have days that feel great, but the sales are awful and that's fine because over time, you know, you're going the right way. I suppose the difficulty over time as you expand is trying to communicate these things to a wider audience. Like we're somewhere in around 70 staff at the moment. And there was a time when it was easy to communicate the importance of the margins and waste and selling coffee beans and all these things because the person is standing right beside you. So I suppose that's the challenge now is like what metrics do you give to people to help them do a better job, but without giving them the sense that they're the only things that are important. Because to me, turnover and profit and success are outcomes. Our job is to help people understand what the vision is, help them understand what our values are and make them reflect those values and help them call us out and we're not doing things the way they should be done. And everything else comes because of that. So just sending people a list of things to do or, or a staff handbook with all these rules is, is not enough. And that's the challenge, which is, it's really difficult, but you know, I'm excited by it at the same time. And any mistakes? Anything you wished you'd done differently? I think for a long time, uh, the business was too much about me and I don't, mean or maybe some people listening will disagree but I don't mean in the sense that I want all the credit it's just that I felt I needed to do everything so I found it hard to let go of things um, and I give people jobs but I'd ultimately just take it back and finish it for them and I think one thing I see in business owners a lot is that we're very forgiving of our own mistakes like so I know people running businesses and they mess something up and they're like oh it's fine it's grand to fix it you know this, it's not a big deal and they give responsibility to one of their own staff members and the first inclination that they might have got something even slightly wrong is like, oh, you idiot, what are you doing? I'm never letting that person do that ever again. It's ridiculous. They messed it up. I have to do everything. This is daft. And we just ignore how many times we've messed that up ourselves. And like the truth is that you have to let people make mistakes and sit down and go through it with them. And I suppose foster an environment where they feel safe to come and go, I absolutely messed this up. Uh, and you're not roaring and shouting at them, you know, because um, that's how you get better. That's how people improve. It's just like talking about how they can do things better and having an environment where they can disclose that is really important for a business. I'd say I probably have staff members listening to this right now that are laughing away going, you think he's still like that? Uh, <laughs> but I think being conscious of it is is the first thing, you know, that's the first step. Um, and like I can do accounting. I studied accounting many times in, in university and skill and I know how to do it. But like for five years, I beat myself up over it, trying to get it done and getting the time to focus on it and do that. And it was awful. You know, it was an absolute disaster. And I realized that like, I can do this, but somebody else can do it much better and much faster. And it frees me up to do the things that I can do really well. So I think that's the best thing about being in the business is like, we all collectively get to be proud of the skill set of all of our colleagues. So and it goes from everything from latte art down to shop design and roasting and stacking pallets, you know, but we all get to share in that common pill. We should all be conscious that we're not all expected to be the full gambit. We don't all have to have every skill necessary. It's acknowledging the ones you have, trying to grow them and trying to work with people to have the other ones. And that's when everything really starts to home. Colin, it's been absolutely fabulous to have you here on Fifth Wave today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Conlon offers incredible advice for coffee and hospitality operators who are looking to scale. Know that you are in control of the parameters within your own business. Simply increasing revenue doesn't always equal success. Instead, for informed decision-making, it's critical to use a variety of hard and soft metrics that align to your brand's long-term goals and objectives. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. And if you want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, our newsletter collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Links are in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And this week's song in collaboration with the Coffee Music Project is Send Me by London-based Irish artist Bobby Harvey. Until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated. Sing along to the music Wishing I was with you instead Even if we don't go very far Even if I'm not in such a heart As much as I like to think Would you still buy me a drink? If you see me at the bar When you knew that, knew that I was on a mission to be seen by you So can we get a drink or two? Cause I can think of only you, only yeah, you Yeah, you carry all my kisses Sending through the wind now that you don't miss him Cause my heart forbid that they would get to anyone else's lips To the night, I ask if you are.